checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast about people with people. As usual, I'm your host, Mitch Gaines. You can find me at Mitch Gaines just about anywhere on the internet that I want to be found. If this is your first time checking out our show, thank you, thank you, and thank you. We are so happy to have you along with us. Those People is a show with people, about people, where again, we explore the labels that other people give us and the ones that we give ourselves. So every episode, we sit down with a different guest and we interview them about their stories, their successes, their struggles, all the important S words, really. But most importantly, we kick it with them about the people who are involved. So if you love it, we'd love you to go out and go tell a friend. And if you hate it, we hate you and please kindly shut the fuck up forever. I'm just kidding about that last part. But if you do hate the show for real, please shoot me a note at mitchgains at gmail.com. Tell me what you hated and we'll try and do a little bit better next time. As always, I also want to take a quick second to remind all of you who do love the show, or just some of those people that we've had on the show, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It really helps other people discover the show. Platforms we are currently on include our sponsor, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Pocket Cast, my personal favorite, Radio Public, and a whole bunch more. If you happen to be an Apple or a Podchaser user and you like the show, it really mean a lot to us if you could rate and review the podcast, but only if you like the show. Those five stars go a long, long way, and you can say the hate takes for Twitter, where, again, you can find me at Mitch Gaines. That's Gaines with a Y, because I'm a little bit gay. G-A-Y-N-S. I am joined today by Isan Leckie, who is a compassionate social justice and racial justice a- uh, activist. She's an immigrant, a survivor in more ways than one, and she's also been an active voice in the call for Wall Street reform. She served as a Federal Reserve Special, ex- uh, special Examiner, where she fought for economic security and safety, and most recently, she's become a candidate for the United States House of Representatives so she can represent Massachusetts's 4th Congressional District, which happens to be the most contested primary in the state. Uh, she's seeking to replace Joe Kennedy, uh, rather Joe Kennedy III, who has inexplicably decided that he would rather primary Ed Markey than hold his seat. Uh, Ed Markey is arguably the most progressive male senator in America besides Bernie Sanders, so I'm not quite sure why he felt the need to do that. Uh, I am excited to talk to Isan about her journey uh, and how she thinks we can all work together to curb corruption and greed from corporate America and Wall Street, and of course, what she plans to do once she's in office. So, without much more ado, welcome to the show, Isan. Did I pronounce What's the name right? Because I have a long history of butchering people's name. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, uh, Mitch. This is so great to be here. Um, hi- hello to all of your listeners, uh, both the lovers and the haters. Um, <laughs> my my name is uh, is Asan, Asan. Uh, so okay. it's uh, yeah, Asan. Um, right. I was closer than usual, but still here. off. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm used to it. I will work on that through, throughout the podcast. If it makes you feel any better, I butchered a Lauren the other day, so it's definitely me. Uh, <laughs> the the way we start off uh, most of our interviews here, we like to do a thing that we call the conversational safe word. So the way this works, very similar to a sexual safe word, but for conversation. We have a safe word. Anything in this interview goes in a direction you want you know, us not to go in, something that's uncomfortable, something that's off limits. You just say that word. I will quickly change topics, and we'll go in another direction. Very similar to a sexual safe word, if you need to use it like five times within the hour that we're having this conversation, we should probably just end the thing now, go in separate directions, you know, come back to this later, have have a more productive conversation, because clearly that didn't go well. Uh, so, what is your conversational safe word? That's a good question. <laughs> no, that's not the safe word. 
Uh, I mean, I do ask mostly bad questions, so that that could work as a safe word. <laughs> no, that's not the safe word. Um, the safe word is um, uh, I'll just pass. I'll just pass. All right, that works for me. Uh, and the other place I usually like to start with people is that you know I, I this is a common refrain on the show. People are probably tired of hearing me say it, but one of the things I find most interesting, kind of about adulthood, right? At least you know those of us who are privileged enough to do so is you know you get to meet a lot of people from a lot of different places. You get an understanding of you know what some certain you know cultures and traditions are like in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. Uh, but a lot of us don't get to ever see what childhood is like anywhere else because you know if if we're lucky enough, we only grew up in one, maybe two or three places, right? Uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm always curious, kind of like, where are people from and what is childhood like there? Because I, you know, I only know the childhood of the, the greater Boston area, if you will, and, you know, not much else. So where are you from originally and kind of what was it like growing up there? I'm originally from Morocco, uh, North Africa. Uh, it's a very, very diverse country uh, where, you know, we have com- indigenous communities, we have communities who are um, rooted in Europe, we have communities who are rooted in uh, the Middle East, um, the Arab world. And so, you know, the history is very rich. And it's a country that um, has both, you know, so much beauty, and at the same time, uh, depth of uh, oppressive systems that have held back the opportunities that, that the people of that country could have had. Um, we have a, a huge, op, um, you know, there's a huge population of Moroccans who live overseas um, because that's, that's the way, that's the only way for them to uh, be able to support their families in Morocco, um, where they can find jobs, where they can, you know, have excellent education, where they can dream bigger and get to their dreams um, and, you know, help those uh, in in Morocco who need to still pay for the healthcare bills, um, very, very much like here. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And put food on the table. And so was that the kind of a situation that led your parents to, to come in overseas or? Well, I came here, uh, by myself. Oh, okay. Um, my, nice. my father had, uh, my father was a public school teacher and he had passed away when I was 13 because we couldn't afford his health, uh, his um, medical bills. And my mom, uh, you know, grew up on the farm. And, uh, you know, when my dad passed away, the Moroccan government uh, gave my mom and I a, a little, um, you know, a little bit of, uh, of money, a little stipend to, to live on. And that was super helpful. Uh, you know, it helped put me into uh, to school and, you know, finish my high school degree, went to college for a couple of years. Um, and it really, you know, helped us have, you know, a life with basic necessities and a life with dignity until until I came here. Uh, and so that that to me, you know, is something that I you know, when I when I compare to what happens here to families who lose loved ones because of um, the healthcare costs, a lot of the time they really are just left behind. You know, you, you'll have a you know a single mom or or single dad who is just left alone with no help, um, with no social safety net well, uh, to uh, leave the kids. 
I find I was just having this conversation not an hour before before we got on this podcast uh, with somebody else where it, I, I think one of the things that people fail to see in America about that is like it's not just people who are you know poor and scraping by and it's like oh you know they, they only had you know two hundred dollars in the bank anyway what they expect to happen when they got sick it's like there are people who you know like your dad you know public school teacher you know people you know just normal good middle class jobs who all of a sudden you know they get into their late sixties or early seventies or you know God willing early eighties before they encounter something major but then that one major health expense ends up costing them their entire life savings it's you know 80 100 200 000 and all of a sudden like you have generations that can't recover from that right because now all of a sudden you you have kids who are trying to you know pay off a hundred thousand dollars worth of student debt and a hundred thousand dollars worth of their parents medical debt making you know 42 grand a year and hoping it works out at some point uh and it's a, a very kind of tragic scenario when you see it up close especially juxtaposed with like you know a, another place where it could you know quite clearly be very different Exactly. And, you know, I've been talking to people from my district for way too long about this. You know, their elder parents have exhausted all the savings and now they've, you know, sold their home and uh, to put them into long term care. And the children have already spent their own savings and it just keeps going. And now the children, they couldn't send their children to college anymore because they've you know, they've spent everything on, on the health care of the elders. And that's, you know, that that is the how the poverty cycle is induced um, because of the health care injustice. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more there. I uh, I know you mentioned kind of going backwards a little bit that you said you, you came over by yourself. Are you are you an only child or did you have like siblings and everything that you were growing up with over in Morocco, too? Oh, I do have siblings. Um I have three brothers. I'm I'm the youngest child. We had there's a nine year gap between me and my brother. That was kind of the I was a surprise child. Yes, yeah, and I'm also the only girl, so it's uh it's interesting. I think they were very, very excited when I arrived. Um <laughs> but yeah, I mean it it was a big decision for them because the cost of living wasn't cheap and my brothers were already, you know, becoming teenagers and, um, you know, living paycheck to paycheck means that, you know, you're not going on fancy vacations anywhere. You're not, you know, you're, you're barely making it to paying the bills. You have a debt at the corner store and, uh, you're just fighting to pay your rent every, you know, every month. And sometimes you come, you know, you come short Mm. and, and that's, you know, an additional child is, is a big financial shock. Um, and my, my, my mom really stood up and she was like, I'm going to have this child no matter what. (laughs) She had a, she had a feeling that something about having this child was going to actually um, help everybody feel better. And it, and to, to my knowledge, and to what I've been hearing from the stories, is that, you know, there was a lot of joy in the family to have a little girl, to have a little sister uh, to play with and, and to grow with. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have played that role. I, I will say, as a as a fellow youngest child, I feel like we get told that a lot anyway. We're always like, oh, everybody was so happy to have you. It was such a joy when you came around. Like, eh, you just talk to the siblings. You might get a different story. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I there's definitely. Gap, they're, you know, they're adults by the yeah. time you can talk. So it's like, 
you're, you're yeah. right there. You know, <laughs> they're, they're well, there's definitely a very, there's a high expectation of what, what's going to come out of you when you grow up, right? So it's like every shortcoming of your other siblings, you're going to, they're, they're going to look up to you to, to make it better. It's like, oh, you've learned the lessons. You've seen that, you know, they've done something and failed or whatnot. And so it's, you can't make the same mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, I read a proverb somewhere one time. I don't even remember where it was from, but it said, uh, "The newest child is always the golden child." And you know, like, I, I, that's how I always feel. It's like, doesn't matter you know, how many kids you have. Once you have another one, you're like, "All right, we can make up for all the things we fucked up about the other ones." Right? Uh, <laughs> it never quite works out that way, but there, that pressure is definitely on you from the from the minute you come out the womb. Like, you're gonna speak nine languages and travel the world and make millions of dollars and also <laughs> cure cancer and fix poverty. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, hey man, like I was yeah. just hoping to like maybe manage a Starbucks. <laughs> so I, well, I, are all yeah. of them still living in Morocco? Or did some of your siblings come over with you? Like, did you have like a family um, structure when one, you moved? Or did you just like up and make no. them all on your own? Well, one of my brothers uh, lives here and he was here before me and he was trying to get his citizenship for like over 10 years. He was denied over and over um, for no freaking reason they don't even tell you why um so i mean when i arrived is this, this is during bush years i'm guessing it was, but like the timeline or is it... the the very end of the bush years oh. yeah i came in 2005 um so you were you were smart you waited for obama before you applied for citizenship huh? oh no <laughs> <laughs> i have to admit i had no idea you know i didn't know much about politics at the time mm. i didn't know how you know, not that I, I pretty much did not have faith in politics um, because of where I come from. I come from, you know, basically what would happen in the U.S. if we don't do anything. <laughs> You'll be denied your reproductive rights. You'll be denied your freedom of speech and you'll be denied freedom of thought. In university, you'll be denied to talk about certain subjects. Um, you'll be denied your, you know, I mean, I think we're already, we've already achieved here. Um, I say achieved sarcastically, <laughs> uh, <laughs> making sure that people don't have their basic rights to clean air and clean water. But th those are things that I, you know, I already lived in and saw firsthand what it's like what does it feel like okay what what are the opportunities that you will be denied because of of the oppressive systems and because there you know there is there's no democracy can I ask and you, so for me sorry, yeah I, I just want to jump in there yeah no go ahead one of the, one of the things i I hope with this show and I, i've seen a little bit of our analytics pointing in this direction is that our uh, our audience is starting to trend a little on the younger side so you mentioned kind of like seeing that firsthand and experiencing that as a young person like as a as a youth like what were like can you give me like an example of like one of those moments when you're just like this clearly feels off to me and i know as like a young person like this isn't how it's supposed to because young people you know we're innocent right like we have the you know this grand idea of what the world is supposed to be like when we're six years old and then like the rest of the world just beats it out of us for the rest of eternity uh, but like when you're young like that like you have a sense of like this is inherently wrong so was there something like that where you're like oh like i felt this shift that maybe like people here in america especially young people listening at home like they would like look for that and be like oh i, I can sense that now Oh, okay. I have multiple examples. <laughs> <laughs> <I think. 
Well, one was, you know, freedom of the press, mm. right? So growing up, we didn't have freedom of the press. Um, you would read the newspaper and all you see is, you know, the king went here, the king went there. And there is nothing that reflects the realities of the homelessness of children, mm. the realities of the, you know, women being denied their reproductive rights, the realities of LGBTQ folks being imprisoned for being LGBTQ folks, um, the realities of people, you know, getting high degrees and not finding a job. Mm. Um, and so, and more, it's, um, you know, and so you don't see that in the newspaper. You don't see that on, on TV news. It's all omitted. And journalists who, you know, tried to write about the realities um, of, you know, how these oppressive systems have been denying people their basic human rights, those journalists would disappear. Hmm. And that's that here in the U.S., we're already in that trajectory, right? There was a journalist who was literally killed Right, just a few months ago. There are so much coverage, and I I always wonder whenever I see a story like that, whether you know a journalist being killed or an unarmed black teen getting shot. It's always in the back of my head, like how many more of these just don't become national stories? And like, I don't, I'm not trying to speculate that like journalists are getting murdered every day, but like, you know, everyone I know who does real reporting has at least one story where you know a shady figure approached them once and told them to stop covering something, or they got an anonymous email or phone call, you know. I mean, it's like, it, it, that seems to be right, way more prevalent than people lead on. You know, I would even challenge that to see what's the obvious. What are things that we actually see that we don't even have to dig into? Like, if you see that Trump is standing in front of an audience of, of um, journalists and he's denying them their right to ask questions, he's dismissing them and then leaving the room without answering any questions, that by itself, that should be enough of a warning that that his strategy is to shut the press up and if the press is not giving him attention then he's going to oppress them he's going to force them to fire their own journalists he's going to go after independent journalists who are you know speaking up of the issues that he doesn't want covered and you know that's how it's been happening so we need to wake up and really start to see these things as serious and take them really, really seriously. These are signs of, you know, how fascism works. This is how fascism works, is by starting to oppress the press. So that the only news that's coming out is what, you know, what Trump would want to come out. I I always look at it like the, you know, essentially public officials are supposed to be obviously, you know, beholden to the public and the two forms of accountability the public has, you have, you know, the legal system and the justice system, and then you have, you know, obviously a, a free press. And so as it stands currently, you know, you have an administration that essentially is utilizing the, the justice arm of 
the government uh, as an extension of the executive branch. And therefore, the only accountability you can have is public opinion and press. And once that starts to fade away, then, we're, you know, we're, we're just minutes away from a dictatorship. We're one decision away, you know what I mean? Uh, because there's nothing, there's nothing there to check that, and that is very frightening to me. I guess one of the things I'm curious about, because you, you mentioned, you know, having all these different examples, uh, seeing how simple it has been for the Trump administration to essentially seize like the the justice system as a, a tool of power. Uh, obviously, this is not you know unique to this moment in American history. This has happened several times from you know Jim Crow through Reconstruction to you know all sorts of different eras of, of American history where you know law enforcement and you know the judicial department or justice department rather uh, was wielded by the executive branch either at the the federal or the local level uh, as kind of an arm and tool of authoritarianism. Uh, is that it, was that something similar that you grew up around? Like, are, are there similar signs like that that you'd be pointing to? Like, hey, like, n not only is this wrong, but there is like, w w there was solutions to challenge that and to, to fix that. Because obviously, like, you are a reformer, you are an activist now, and I'm curious, like, how much of that is like stuff you saw and you know saw worked versus stuff you saw and was like, no, we can't do it this way. Um, can you like, can you elaborate a little bit more on your question? Yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is, like, uh, with those two forms of accountability, right? Like, you mentioned, uh, it kind of as that first example, things we, we can see with our own two eyes okay. and the denying of a, of, of a free press. Is there kind of a, an analog to that where you can kind of see the denial of a, of a fair justice system in that same way? Because I, I think it's easy for us to point to, you know, we point to examples like an appointment of a Supreme Court justice, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, it, both sides do that, and it's, you know, generally a, a pretty partisan thing, or at least in the past 30 years of my lifetime, certainly as, as long as you've been in America, I'm certain. Uh, and so I, I'm curious about like, uh, are there other forms of sort of, uh, judicial overreach like that, that you, you know, are familiar with kind of seeing, uh, that sort of overreach and are, or what are the kind of lessons to learn from that, that we might be able to, you know, keep an eye out for now? Well, I mean, it's difficult to compare in that sense, just because of the structure of the American government versus, um, Morocco, um, in at least, you know, in the American government, we do have, um, you know, the the Supreme Court. However, it's appointed by the president, mm -hmm. so we're we're in a loss there. <laughs> we already, you know, have Brett Kavanaugh, who is determined to, you know, deny reproductive uh, justice, and that is, you know, that is really. Um, that's very scary to say the least. Uh, as you know, as someone who um, survived uh, an abortion in a country that deemed it illegal, um, I understand again firsthand what it would be like if abortion was completely illegal in the U.S. And you know, honestly, like even now, even now, people are having um, unsafe abortions. Um, which are risking their lives because they don't have access to abortion in a safe way. Um, you know, there are centers that are um, quote unquote abortion centers. However, you know, they are, um, you know, anti-choice and like, yeah. Yeah. Conversion therapy <laughs> just in a, in a doctor's yeah, office. Essentially they, yeah, they try to intimidate patients, um, and, um, you know, really hurt, hurt them uh, mentally and emotionally. 
and that's you know we have we have a lot to work with when it comes to reproductive justice and and i think you know when i think of um how our government system is is you know um not as robust as we would want it to be then you start to look into a, what the movement can do hmm. right because you always have the people's power um well one thing that we can do is to really focus on um, expanding the progressive bench in Congress. We all have to remember that this country is not controlled by one person at the top unless we allow it to be that way. And so we have a lot of other areas where we can exude power in electoral. Now, electoral takes time. It takes a lot of resources, boots on the grounds. Um, it takes money, unfortunately, and it takes determination. You know, building building um, candidates, building future candidates who are resilient and who are going to actually, you know, take back uh, take back our, our our democratic party, take back our government, um, really fight so hard. Um, for our democratic values. And that's, as I said, you know, that takes determination, it takes a movement, it takes time. Um, but also, you know, pressure on the ground, being able to uh, rally, being able to organize peacefully is very, very powerful. And it's something that I came to appreciate um, even, you know, in the, after, you know, after Trump took office, especially in, in that we still have that level of freedom in the most part. You know, I'm not saying, you know, there, had, there have been cases where people were rallying and they were attacked by the police. Um, that is also not to be taken lightly. We have to make sure that we're paying attention and we're following through. If, we, if we're going to be denied our right to organize, um, then again, that's... <laughs> That's how fascism works, is that they want to shut you up. They want to make sure um, you can't even voice um, your demands from your own government, either locally, you know, state government or um, or federal. And so that's that's why we have to be ready. Um, we have to be ready and we have to understand that putting peace first is super important um, and participating in electoral is just as important. So you, you spoke a, a great length here, kind of a, about a, a lot of different experiences of yours that sort of informed your politics. I'm curious, like, I, you, I'm sure you didn't, like, you mentioned earlier, you didn't come to America to be a politician, right? Like, so it's like, what was, uh, who did, like, who are you, your friends, or like, who did you meet, or like, who are these people, who, or like, what experiences was it that kind of turned you on to like, okay, like, I, I think I need to dedicate my life over here, like towards like fixing this, because uh, I I would imagine that wasn't you know you d you didn't come over here like you know a twinkle in your eye being like I you know I can't wait to be a, a United States congressman. Man, I've I've worked on fixing so many things. I feel like my whole life has been about fixing stuff. That sounds like uh, the life of most women I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's women. I think it's also immigrants. You yeah. know. <laughs> Because, you know, because of where I came from, um, I, I couldn't accept 
that anything in the U.S. would be comparable mm. to, um, you know, to to the to to the hurt and pain that people live in Morocco. I wanted that this country be way better. Um, I know that no place is perfect, but when you're a little child and you are, you know, living through um, domestic violence, sexual violence, um, you're seeing violence outdoors, you're, you know, it's, you don't know that there is an alternative, mm-hmm. but you do dream that maybe things can be better. You know, when you have those moments where your family is so happy and you guys are having a great time, you do wish that all the time would be like that as a little kid. And you start to dream of a place where there is happiness all the time, where the adults are just getting along all the time, where you can actually get that, um, you know, that that pencil or those stockings or that backpack um, that you really wanted two, three years ago. Right. Or and even so just like that, hug, that care, that attention. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then hug and care and attention, even at school, that your teacher would actually love you, mm. right? Not not that your teacher is also stressed and underpaid and <laughs> so on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And suffering mental illness. <laughs> like I've had teachers who had mental illness. So, you know, you start to actually make up a, a world for yourself as a child of where you know, how do you wish it to be? You you draw it, you might not talk about it, but, but it's in your mind and you seek that world. And as you grow, a lot of the time people are, you know, faced with two paths, especially in teenagehood, where we're like, it's either you're going to continue to work really hard to realize that dream or that the systems are so oppressive that you find yourself becoming um, you find yourself just not able to continue and and you start to think that it isn't going to work you know and I have so many cousins and people in my family who unfortunately took that route because there was no hope for them they felt that you know they can go and study and go you know into the education side of things and and they would still not find, not get a job. They would still not be able to start a business or um, start a family. And so, you know, they they dropped out of school. Mm. They dropped out of school, and some of them, you know, tried to go into other jobs um, and you know, learning skills and things like that. But it's still like fundamentally, when you live in a system where you see the super rich is just so wealthy that they have so much excess and you can't just, you know, make sure you can't guarantee breakfast every morning (laughs) that it just becomes a down, you know, a downward spiral for so many people. And so, you know, I, I saw that here when I came here, I, the first thing that really shocks me was seeing homelessness um, because I did expect that this country would fit that dream um, that, you know, you come here, you work hard, you go to school, um, you'll get a job, you'll have a, you know, you'll be financially stable. But 
I didn't realize that in that pathway, you will be forced to get into so much debt so that when you're trying to start that family, um, you're already being halted and shackled down by that debt. I didn't realize that, you know, that in that path, um, you will literally witness people falling off the success path or falling off even the opportunity. They have been denied opportunity over and over. And you see them right in front of your eyes and you are given a choice. You're like, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do? You need to keep going because you feel that your responsibility is to, you know, keep your head down and succeed so that you can come back around and help them out if they're still be there. Yeah. And so that's been, you know, that's been the path for, for my, for my personal um, life in this country where I, you know, I had taken uh, some minimum paying jobs you know, tipped wages, I faced sexual harassment and, and um, you know, wage theft. I um, was afraid of, you know, medical bankruptcy and deportation and just kept on holding on to that dream and really surviving day in and day out. Um, so I can one day really, really fight for those who are at the bottom. It uh, it reminds me a lot. I uh, I know I don't know if this is the first time in your life you've been compared to Jay Z, so I'll, I'll give you that distinction. Uh, but there's a great <laughs> a great Jay Z quote that he took a lot of shit for over over the years, where he said, uh, "I can't help the poor if I'm one of them." Uh, and it's like that sounds really harsh and really cruel, but it also it's it's the lived reality of you know most people I know who are trying to change the system, right? It's like on that path towards success, you're literally watching, you know, maybe some people like you, but a lot of people, you know, tangential to you, at least people who look like you and sound like you and come from your communities, like falling off that success path through largely not, not a lot of fault of their own, right? Like some of that is mental health. Some of that is money. Some of that is housing. Like all of these things come up, but it's like, if you want to be the, the successful story of like, I, you know, I am the successful immigrant. I am the successful rags to riches story. I'm, I'm the successful American dream that requires so much just like ignorance of the things that are, are happening in front of you for you to get somewhere to do something about it. And like, I understand that that feels cold, but that it also is like, you know, that just is the path, right? Like you have to get here before you can do anything for people behind you. And to get there, boy, does it take blocking a lot of the shit you see along the way out and like persevering, like you said, like surviving a sexual assault, surviving poverty, surviving homelessness, surviving abuse. And then like to get to the end of that, to be like, all right, cool. Now I make like 65 grand a year and like have some sense of, you know, I, I can pay rent on time. Now let me try and take care of the people behind me. You know what I mean? It's just like, holy shit, is that a grind just to get there? Uh, so I, 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 I want to wrap up this first segment here and then jump in uh, on the second half a little bit more about kind of how we can build that world that we're dreaming of where like success doesn't take all of that and more of those people along the way can become successful without having to endure all of that and hopefully, you know, not falling off the path along the way uh so we'll jump back uh in our second segment we'll, we'll pick up where we left off sound good sounds great
I'm one of those people. All right, we are back and we're going to jump into our second segment here. I am one of those people. The those people that we were talking to this season are progressives who are running for Congress. Uh, so anyone who's familiar with this season so far would know that we're focusing mostly on New York City, but also in the in-between there so we don't lose the rest of the country. I've decided to plug in a few episodes with my hometown congressional candidates. So today we were talking to Asan. Did I get it right this time? Asan Lucky? Yeah. I feel like that's still a little bit off. I'm going to work on my pronunciation. We'll, we'll, we'll see if I can do better. Uh, uh, soon to be Cong- Congresswoman Lecky uh, is uh, running for Massachusetts' fourth congressional district and is, in my eyes, certainly the uh, the poster child for what I would consider a reasonable progressive in today's movement. Uh, I, I feel like there are a lot of louder progressives and there are a lot of more boisterous ones, but few more kind of focused on the actual uh, life affecting issues that progressives tend to tend to center themselves around. So I want to talk with you a little bit more about kind of uh, what it means to be a progressive here in america and like what like how you see that label but also how you see the future and how we can kind of make some of the changes possible so i, I guess let me start with the label part is like how do you you know knowing you know you said you come here you don't know a ton about american politics don't even know if you want to be in politics and like how do you arrive at a place where you feel like comfortable presenting yourself as a i'm a, I'm a proud progressive i'm a wall street reformer I, I have this political identity of sorts like how do you get to that place Well, you know, you you try so many different things, right? You you organize, you show up at the rallies, you, um, you know, I I organized for Medicare for All, um, I've organized for a Green New Deal, organized organized for um, reproductive rights and the Row Act at the State House. I testified, you know, tried every. Um, I also, you know, chose to take jobs where I'm actually, you know, fighting for our economic freedoms. Um, you know, as a Wall Street regulator, I, you know, held the biggest banks accountable. Um, biggest banks like Goldman Sachs um, and Bank of America, who had, you know, received uh, bailouts in the 2008 uh, financial crisis. Um, you know, in, in the form of blank checks, there were no conditions and, and the bailouts went straight into the uh, bonuses for the CEOs and, and everyday working Americans were left out homeless and jobless. Um, and so when you see, you know, injustice in that in that form, sometimes it can be overwhelming for folks, you know, it can be overwhelming to actually think of this system that, you know, feeds the one percent. Um, and how how are we, um, you know, as a huge mass of working people can actually, you know, take down that 1% and make sure that we have uh, an equitable um, economy uh, where everybody is included and everybody is served. And so when you think of big problems like that, you can start to think t- for yourself, what can you do? Right. What can you do? I learned uh, a, a huge deal from the work that I did at the Federal Reserve. I worked across uh, regulatory agencies like the um, FDIC, the CFPB. And through that work, I was able to recognize that there one of the one of the ways uh, that these big banks 
benefit and the 1% benefits, because they're very connected, is through shackling people in debt that they can't pay back. Because debt that you can pay back comes at a lower interest rate. But when you can't pay it back, when you default that first, you know, that first month, that second month, and your credit score goes down, and every time you need to borrow, which you have to borrow, but you don't have a choice, every time you borrow, it's at a higher interest rate, well, that's how they make the money. That's how they stay, the richer stay rich, and, and, the, and the poor, the middle, middle, even middle class becomes poor. And so in seeing that, you start to think, how are you gonna address this problem, right? And for me, the experience of seeing Trump come to office and literally shred that program that I worked on and seeing that, um, you know, that that Republicans and corporate Democrats voted to deregulate and seeing that my own representative, um, who's supposed to be progressive, uh, also voted to deregulate, um, had to be pushed on Medicare for all, had to be pushed on a Green New Deal, had to be pushed on in impeachment, uh, was taking money from those same banks that I was fighting. It really made me think that, you know what, the power is in Congress, that our voice needs to be at the table. And I've said before, you know, if they don't have a seat for us at the table, we don't just bring our own seat. We make our own freaking table. I, I I love that because for you know as a as a proud you know mass hole in Bostonian as a, a proud black representative and uh, of our our small population there in Boston uh, there's a, there's that great quote about showing up and bringing your own chair right uh, from Shirley Chisholm but at the same time I I, I feel like. Your, your point about having our own table built, like rebuilding the table, rebuilding the conversation is kind of more where we're at in this stage. Like, you know, one of us showing up and having a voice that just gets drowned out of the table isn't working anymore, right? Like, we have a handful of us in Congress. We, we need a loud voice. We need a caucus. We need a table. Uh, we, you know, we need a committee. Uh, we need a lot of things. But <laughs> uh, I, I think that is a, a well-taken point that uh, it's about kind of organizing all of these people to work in unison and build, you know, a whole separate conversation rather than just trying to get in the door of a conversation that doesn't want us there. Yeah, I think it's, you know, for me, it was it was kind of obvious to see that we have a government that does not plan for a rainy day, right? A lot of the work that I did was making sure that these banks plan for rainy day. So if there is an economic crisis, they're not going to need the bailouts and that they are going to be able to continue to lend to small businesses, et cetera. So the economy can keep going. However, our government does not plan for rainy day in terms of our whole economy. And we see that in this COVID-19 crisis where, I mean, the response is so poor. It's so poor. We People have been sitting for months without that first relief check. Um, have lost their jobs, have not been able to pay for um, their basic, you know, utilities and rent. Um, and and it's just, it, people don't have basic PPE. People don't, you know, it's, we've, we've decided to not prepare. We've decided to not prepare. And that can't happen again. We have to make sure that we 
you know, we learn from precedent. We've lost 80,000 lives so far. That is huge. We've lost 80,000 people because we didn't plan ahead. And because we have a government that is committed to bailing out the, you know, the big corporate uh, CEOs on Wall Street and not bailing out the people. And so we have to reverse that. And the way to reverse it is going to take, as I said before, it's going to take labor organizing. It's going to take electoral organizing so we can have the government that represents the people and not the corporate few. So obviously a, a big t- part of that electoral organizing is getting people involved and getting people to support down-ballot races, get out and organize around some of the down-ballot candidates, uh, and obviously some people like yourself becoming candidates, right? Uh, and so you, you mentioned kind of what activated you in realizing that the, the power was in Congress. What was sort of like the moment for you where you were like, okay, I, I'm, you know, I've been organizing, I, I've been you know, an activist for a while, I've been helping you know, congressional candidates, I would assume, kind of along the way, and I'm seeing it, you know, it, I, I guess not to, not to be too curt about it, but kind of like thrown back in my face, right? Like you, you do all this great regulatory work, and then like you said, like you're watching your representatives you know, vote to shred it in front of you. Uh, and so was that what got you to be like, no, I need to do this myself? Or at that point, were you still thinking like, hey, like maybe there, you know, there are better representatives out there, and like I just need to you know, keep you know, working on the, gra- you know, the grassroots? Like what was the decision for you to become the candidate? Because that's something I'm always curious about with people, where it's like, you know, you clearly were doing plenty of great work before. When did you just get fed up and say like fuck it this needs to be me or was that always something you kind of had in mind well i hope anyone um who has been organizing and who has been devoting their lives to the betterment of the most vulnerable um makes that decision like wakes the fuck up and (laughs) realizes that politics is not a career uh, politics is not something that you need to go to school for or to to the fanciest schools. It's not something that you need your family to be part of. Um, politics is your right to serve your community and to take the hit for them and to be strong for them. And if you're going to jump into running for office uh, at, at, in any capacity, then you better have lived the the experiences of your constituents because you need to be able to have felt it to to fight for it as hard as you can just like when you fight on the street you come out and you you know bring your signs and you shout out and you lobby your um you know your representatives and you tell them to do the right thing just like you do that work you can take that level of organizing into office um and you know it's not um you have to be unconventional in your in the way you do things, right? You have to be smarter because in order for you to, to succeed, to actually win that seat for the people, you're going to have to do a lot more work than those who come from political backgrounds and, and you know, establishments, um, uh, props. Well, so well, you're going to have to, yeah. It, it's one of the things I, I really want to emphasize for people listening out there at home is like, Yes, that is hard, and yes, you are going to work harder and, and, and differently than a lot of people who have, you know, say, a political science degree from Yale, right? Like, I'm, I'm sure that guy's going to have an internship somewhere in D.C. and then be in a, a pipeline program to run for office in a few years. But, like, the, the, the poll quote from this whole episode for me is certainly, politics isn't a career, it's your right. You know what I mean? And it's like, 
my, one of my favorite examples of this, I uh, got interviewed on our first season, Joshua for Congress, uh, uh, Josh Collins out in T- uh, Seattle area. He's running for Congress, and he's a 26-year-old socialist truck driver. You know what I mean? Guy never went to college at, uh, as a high school degree or a GED, I think. You know, joined the workforce when he was, like, you know, 13 years old, has been pretty much, you know, been kicked around by, you know, shitty laws his entire life, and finally said, fuck it, I'm going to run for Congress and change this. And it's like, that's... Like, that's your right. As an American citizen, you can get up and just go change shit. And I think that's the the, the last expression of freedom we kind of have is, like, the ability to just get up and go run ourselves. And like you said, it doesn't mean it won't be hard. It doesn't mean that you're not at a disadvantage. But one of the things I do want to point out there is that all those legacy systems are just that. They're legacy systems, right? Like, all of those can be hacked. All of those can be more efficient. All of those, like, you can find a better, cheaper, easier way to do because we've been doing them the same way for essentially 30, 40, 50 years. Years. And a lot has changed in 30, 40, 50 years that we should probably be able to figure out a way to beat those political systems. And that gives me a lot of hope because, like, I, I look at a lot of these newcomers and it's like, well, you know what? You don't need a political science degree. You need, like, you know, a, an associate's degree in, like, social media and communications marketing. You know what I mean? Like, to win a campaign. I'm not saying that's a good way to govern, but I'm saying, like, if, you're, if, the, if the barrier to entry to politics for so many people is, like, how do I fund and win a campaign? Like, you can do that now on, like, you know, seven thousand dollars and some crafty interns. You know what I mean? Especially at the local level, it's it's very doable. Uh, and so I I guess that's one of the things I want to talk to you a little bit about is sort of the process of campaigning. So, uh, am I right in assuming this is your your first campaign? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, I, I, I didn't know if you'd held like other like local offices that uh, I wasn't able to find on the internet at some point or anything like that. Uh, and so, w- you know, what have you kind of you know you're obviously learning on on a pretty steep curve in such a such a hostile primary. Uh, but what have you learned has been kind of like the the key factor for you guys campaigning and kind of getting the word out and like letting people know that there is an advocate for them here and like a very well qualified one at that. You know what I mean? It's it's not exactly like the sexiest career of all time to just like be hey I'm a Wall Street regulator. It's not like you know. People are Googling Wall Street regulators and, like, know who you are. Uh, and so what has that been like kind of getting out there as a, as a relatively normal person, like, fighting, you know, for everybody else and getting yourself known? Well, really, is the way we connect with the constituents. Um, you know, it's, it's, again, you know, those lived experiences um, that come as, you know, deeply essential in connecting with people. They want to know that you actually understand where they come from. Uh, and they want to know that you are going to actually advocate for them. You know, yes, experience is great to have. It's really great to have experience, you know, like I've had experience in, in regulatory and in, in understanding how our economy can be one that serves everyone and withstands uh, big shocks. Um, but what's more important is when you, you know, speak with folks, for example, in, in labor, um, in unions, and they want to know if you're just going to be another politician um, who's going to use them as a prop, and then you're going to go and make deals with the lobbyists from the same companies that screwed them up. Mm. Um, they want to know. And so when we have the candid conversation about how I'm just, you know, I came from them. I came from their hurt and pain, and I'm here to um, to fix the problem. I'm here to to make sure that people don't have to go through the suffering that I had to go through, right? Mm-hmm. That we can have, you know, what you called before success. We can have success. Um, we can have economic participation, but without 
um, without a, a traumatic experience of poverty. Without that, we we're not allowed to have poverty in the richest country in the world. We shouldn't. We should not be allowed to have poverty in this country. Um, and so, when we have those conversations, there's there's just a huge difference between that and between somebody who comes in, you know, super polished and talks in a way that is so disconnected and talks policy only. No, we talk real life experiences and we tie that to policy, to what we're fighting for, to Medicare for all, to a Green New Deal, um, you know, to a green recovery plan for COVID-19, mm. to a resilient, um, you know, to reform of Wall Street and to uh, a resilient economy. It's uh, it's probably my biggest criticism of the, of the Twitter left, if you will, is like there's so many, you know, whether actual or pseudo academics online who just want to talk, you know, all, all we care about is policy. And it's like, well, yeah, that's great. If you're somebody who's really tuned in and reads policy papers and has a bunch of spare time and no kids and a job you have time off from. But like the people like I talk to and the people in my life who work 50, 60, 70 hours a week at a job that barely pays them enough to pay rent really don't give a shit about reading policy. I need something that I can distill into like 12 words about how it's going to change their lives. You know what I mean? And that's not, I'm not trying to say right. that those people are like unintelligent or anything i'm just saying like a lot of people in my life don't have time for that shit you know what i mean i don't want to hear about how like this policy may impact my life six to ten years from now depending on which decisions i make i want to hear about some shit that's going to fix my life like sooner rather than later uh and so with that in mind i guess one of the things i like to ask people when i you know especially candidates obviously when i interview them on the show it's like you know you're running for house like house terms are two years it's not you know it's a long time in theory but it's a very short time in politics um and so like what is you know, we, we talked about a lot of different things kind of throughout the show so far. What is sort of the signature thing you want to try and focus on and get accomplished in those first two years? Because, uh, you know, a few of the things we talked about, obviously, you know, it, battling corruption, battling corporate corruption, uh, taking on Wall Street and kind of, you know, getting getting uh, some congressional power around regulating Wall Street. Uh, another thing I'd I saw on your website that I'm, I, I wish more on the left we're talking about is universal family care. Uh, and I think especially in the face of the COVID-19 crisis, as we try to, quote unquote, reopen America, the only way we're going to be able to reopen America is in, in some sort of situation in which we have really good, safe childcare for everybody who, you know, all these working parents who gotta go reopen the economy. Uh, so what is like sort of the signature thing for you when you're kind of going through, you know, I, I have two years here, what can I really get done in the first, you know, a uh, year and a half or so before I gotta go campaign again to be reelected? I mean, those two years are going to be the most significant in the history of our country. Um, we are going to be, you know, hopefully coming that out of for COVID-19. In the, back the most significant <laughs> two years in our country. Vote lucky. In the history of our country, you know, we have never ever, um, you know, hit such a, such a you know a, a deep dive of our economy. And one thing that I really want to point out is that, you know, the the prices of food at home have gone up to a level um you know that that we haven't seen i think since the 70s and the the income of everyday working people the working class has gone down now who who's who's okay in this equation are people who were able to keep their jobs and work from home which are generally higher paying jobs Right. So those people aren't as affected. It might feel like 
you know, things haven't gotten that bad for them. But the majority are the working class people who have lost their 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 jobs and who are now struggling to, you know, buy basic food for their children because the prices have gone up. It's also like the, the essential workforce, right? Where it's like, you know, these people aren't going back to work. They've been at work the whole time. And it's like, they weren't making a living wage to begin with. I see all these States. I, yeah. I, I was Florida. I mentioned earlier that I'm out here in Minnesota, right? You know, back home in Massachusetts, we're fighting for a $15 minimum wage and we're already at like 12 something or I think it's 13 now as of January. I came out here to Minnesota mm-hmm. to find out that the minimum wage in Minnesota is nine eighty six an hour. So even if you're giving somebody a, a 25, 50% pay raise on, you know, as quote unquote hazard pay, that's going to go, you know, get phased out in a year in a couple of weeks. It's like, what are you actually paying? Like, you're still not paying them a living wage. You know what I mean? You're like, we still haven't even hit $15 an hour when you were paying me time and a half the whole time. So it's like, you then expect yeah. those people to go back to working at their regular reduced rate of, you know, sub $10 an hour as food prices skyrocket. And like, they're going to keep showing up to work for what I'm, I'm going to risk my life every day to not be able to put food on the table. I'll stay in my ass home and start a business or find some other way. Like, fuck this. Like, I'm not going to work at target. Right. I'm not going to work at like the stop and shop. <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> And well, so then yeah. we're, we're giving I mean, these people is... this false choice essentially is like you can die from starvation or you can die from, you know, exposure to a deadly virus. Uh, and th- like you said, the people who are immune from that choice are the people who are working from home, the people who, you know, work for a, a digital media company or a, a somebody who works in, you know, a, 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 a job or a capacity where you can work remotely and still make, you know, six figures or high five figures. Right. And so the people who are already making right. below the poverty line as the poverty line gets higher and higher because of the cost of inflation are still are going to be further and further away from that. And I, every plan I see sort of fails to address that. And it, it, it just seems like we're all sort of accepting that those people are going to have shittier lives than they did before. And it's like, we, we were on the verge of a revolution 12 weeks ago. You know what I mean? Like before COVID-19 hit, like we were just about there. And now you're going to tell those people, sorry, your life is going to get, you know, depending on who you're talking to, anywhere from 10% to 200% worse. And you just expect everything's going to be fine. Like, I, I don't know how people expect that to go over. I'm, I'm very worried about like, not just those people, but also like the reaction of those people and what that does to the rest of society. You know what I mean? Like I, I certainly wouldn't be sitting on my hands right now if I was one of them. You know what I mean? So I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm hopeful. Obviously these next two years, as you say, will be the most impactful two years of our life. I'm also hopeful that we, we get to the start of those two years, uh, as a country. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I guess. So, the, I mean, you, you, Okay. Yeah, you, you you asked me, you know, specifically what I would what, what I would work to do, um, you know, what is it, six months from now or mm-hmm. about, <laughs> yeah, a few months from now, twenty twenty one, you know, we're we're not going to be uh, out of this. There's going to be you know, the, the way just just the way the economy works. Like when it goes down, it goes, you know, it's going down really hard, and to bring everything back up uh, in a better way, then we're going to have to work from the bottom up. And for, and that for me means that, well, first, you know, right now we need to make sure we're getting people $2,000 a month for um, the remainder of the crisis. Um, we need to make sure we have paid family leave and, um, and hazard pay and paid sick leave. 
you know, these are just like basic, basic necessities for people to be able to stay somewhat afloat during the crisis. And then as we're looking into recovery, we're going to need to, um, you know, rebuild in a green way and in an equitable way. And that means we need a green homes guarantee. We need affordable homes. We need um, a 21st century green transportation um, that is, you know, fast. And we need, um, you know, to rebuild our infrastructure to make sure that, um, you know, that the water we're drinking is clean. Um, and so, and, and we have to, you know, between now and uh, 2030, we're going to have to be out of fossil fuels and into renewables. And I know it's like sometimes we think of 10 years and it doesn't sound like a lot of time, but it it's we we can't compete with um you know with the climate emergency like we don't have a choice when it comes to the climate emergency um so we have to act and we have to act rapidly and you know i i will work really hard to make sure that in this you know green uh economic recovery uh, recovery plan that we're centering the most vulnerable in our communities um, and that we are looking for, you know, this this is a, you know, this is the Green New Deal uh, in the form of um, COVID-19 recovery. That's, this is basically what that is. And, and it means that we have to, you know, center the working class. We have to center um, indigenous communities. We have to, you know, rebuild our economy in a way that doesn't create more hurdles for people who have been denied economic opportunity over generations, but rather um, give them first and foremost priority on having economic opportunity to break the poverty cycle um, and to have a resilient um, working class um, that lives a life with dignity uh, and prosperity. I, uh, so I, I, I just celebrated a birthday a couple of weeks ago. I just turned 30 and you mentioned there that, you know, 10 years doesn't feel like a lot of time sometimes. And I would urge people to, you know, think about 10 years ago instead of 10 years in the future. And you'll realize how much time 10 years is. You know, I mean, looking back 10 years ago and how different the world, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't even talk about, you know, being in favor of gay marriage, like out in public. You know what I mean? Like it, it, 10 years ago was like a, a world of difference. And so when we think about how different the world could be 10 years from now, I would urge people to kind of have that moment of reflection and be like, hey, man, like, I, you know, I didn't even have an iPhone yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like things, things, things were a lot different then. Uh, kind of taking taking a, a look forward though, and being able to look at it like, hey, you know, ten years, you know, is a big long time, but it's a collection of very small things. Uh, and I guess to to give a little levity to this conversation here that we've been having about very serious things, you know, I, who knows what those ten years will hold, right? Could could go completely left for us, and the entire world could self destruct for all we know. So what is like? what is like the little thing you want to do once you get in the office, right? Like you might only be there for two years. You might get, you know, shut down at every turn on every vote that you, you cash. You might be on the losing side and then you might get run right out of office and the world sucks five years from now and everything fell to shit. But like, at least like you had a chance to, you know, hang a picture of your grandmother in a, in a congressional office or like you renamed something in your, your neighborhood after a brother. Like, is there like a little thing like that where just like, just like, you know, a token item for you kind of thing that you want to do once you're in Congress? I definitely want to uh, get the get the Congress to regulate Wall Street and not the other way around. So for me, it's all about 
really creating coalitions in Congress um, and bringing, you know, bringing my expertise and knowing how how we can twist Wall, Wall Street's arms to make sure they're doing the right thing and they're not gambling with our economy. And for me, like that's that would really make my day <laughs> that if I can get if, I, you know, if we can get Wall Street out of um, out of our government, um, if we actually can have power over Wall Street, um, that's that's a huge step forward. Um, so I take it you do not but, believe in little things then. <laughs> um, you know, okay, I'll entertain that. Um, <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have. Um, so when my grandmother passed away, um, my little girl Nora, my my daughter, was only two months old, hmm. uh, and my grandma really, really helped me uh, throughout. Um, my pregnancy and the birth process and she was in Morocco at the time so we would only talk via phone but you know she delivered 10 children uh, and she had a lot of deep (laughs) wisdom and knowledge yes and so a lot of the things that she taught me um, were very similar to what you would learn in like a Lama's class Mm. and I I know a lot of folks who 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 take Lama's to, to learn about birth and so she was like you know, gravity goes down. And so when you are giving birth, sit at the edge of a, of a chair to give birth. Don't lay down on your back. Hmm. And so, you know, in our Lamas class, we were learning about all these variations of giving birth, you know, in water or, you know, how to like use gravity to your advantage. Um and that really inspired me and really it helped me in a moment where, and I know a lot of mothers are, you know, go through a lot of hardship and, um, you know, get, you know, they, they aren't uh, treated um, well at the hospital when giving birth, um, which is why, you know, side note, I support uh, making sure that we have doulas uh, as part of Medicare for all. Mm. And so, so I'm in the hospital and I'm giving birth and, you know, the doctor, uh, you know, she comes in and she's very handsy and she was like, I'm going to need you to lay down on your back. And I was at that time, like, I, that's it. Like the baby is going to come. Hmm. And I was, and I told her, I mean, I, you know, I'm in pain and I'm, and I told her gravity goes down. <laughs> <laughs> So when my when my grandma passed away, um, God bless her soul, I had, you know, I went to Morocco, took Nora with me, uh, you know, and I'm nursing on the airplane and all this craziness, craziness happening. And I brought back with me my grandmother's scarf and I framed it and it looks like a medella. It's so beautiful. And everyone who comes to my house, they're like, oh, that's a nice, what is that, a painting or what is that? And I tell them it's my grandmother's scarf and tell them the story. So I think when I'm in Congress, I'll take that with me and put it in my office because it's so grounding for me. And it brings that, you know, grandmother's wisdom and power and all that she survived in her life and all, you know, the resilience that she poured into me and into my daughter and generations to come well if you if you don't hate it then in the sometime in my future while i have some spare time i'm definitely designing campaign merch for you that says stay grounded gravity goes down <laughs> <laughs> i 
love that. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> that is that is such a perfect story. I, I I usually ask people what their what their favorite moment of kind of campaigning and what and what they want to do when they get in the office would be but like that definitely takes the cake so i i think i want to leave it there we're, we're gonna wrap up there and i'm gonna bring you back for our final segment everybody's favorite segment random people right after this people so we are back and we're going to play random people with our guest today uh isan how'd i do i feel like i I feel like i keep fucking up the l i I don't know why i (laughs) there's no l that's what i mean i don't know why i keep putting one in because i I think it's the 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 capital i at the beginning of your name it just feels like there's an l in it for me for some reason uh and so, like I like I say it with an L in my head all the time, and there clearly isn't. Okay, Isan, better. Great. Uh, still uh, okay. I'll I'll take it. I'm I'm not I'm not gonna keep trying to. <laughs> I can tell that. All right, so we're gonna play random people with a uh, Ms. Lucky, uh, <laughs> soon to be Representative Lucky. Uh, and so the way that this works is I have a list of people here, one through a hundred. She's going to choose three numbers, one through a hundred, and I will tell her who those people are. She's then going to tell me the first three things that pop in her head about those people, and then I get to ask one follow-up question about each of those. So, without further ado, what are your three numbers? Okay, number three, number 20, and number four. Three, four, and 20. All right. Any, uh, I always am curious, any significance to these numbers for you? Any lucky numbers? Well, 2020, 2020 is when I'll be elected. Uh, <laughs> uh, three is just because he asked for three numbers. And uh, four is because I'm born on May 4th. Ah, you share a birthday with my girlfriend, actually. May the 4th be with you. And All happy, right. very, Thank you. Uh, very recent birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so we will start with three. Uh, give me your first three thoughts about software engineers. Uh, I will make sure to uh, work with them to to make our uh, our government, uh, you know, tools and everything much more advanced, especially for you know things like um, voter registration, automatic voter registration, um, you know, automatic paying taxes nobody should have to you know file your taxes every year and all this stuff so i think they're smart i think they make decent money i think they should invest their money in uh progressive candidates who would uh get them to use their smarts in becoming uh, more advanced um 
society. All right. That, that, that was solid. <laughs> See, you're all worried about that. You're, first one you hit out of the park. That's perfect. <laughs> All right, we'll go down to number four, which is right underneath it. So this is easy. Give me your first three thoughts about thieves. Um, Wall Street executives. <laughs> Those are three words. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. That might be the, the best answer I've gotten so far. Okay. I. All right. Scrolling down to number 20, this one's going to be fun for you. First three thoughts about black people. Um, we need reparations. Okay. Okay. I'm with that. Okay. So I'll, I'll work in reverse for my follow-up questions then. You say we need reparations. Uh, I, I hear pretty much every every candidate from the center on over, you know, saying, we, you know, I support the bill to have the conversation about reparations, uh, but not a lot about, like, what reparations would look like. Is there is there, like, a, a particular form of reparations that you support or, like, you've drafted yourself or, like, someplace you would direct people to go when they when they want to see a version of reparations that would be, like, able to be implemented? Is there, like, a, a particular version of that that you support? I think when we think of reparations, a lot of people tend to think, you know, it's about, it's only about economic um, opportunity or about, you know, making sure that we get people out of the poverty cycle and, you know, pay them back for the, the, you know, hundreds of years of labor um, that their ancestors um, were forced into as slaves and that, they themselves have been forced into with low wages um, and toxic air and water uh, that derailed um, their own health and the health of their children. It's, it's not just about that. It's all of that plus cases like what happened to Ahmad um, Aubrey, cases like what happened to Sandra Bland that's where reparations should start. I mean, if you walk outside and you're worried about your safety or the safety of your children because of the color of your skin, there's no reparation that's gonna fix that. Justice is gonna, justice is gonna fix that. If you feel that your own government is not standing up for you to be treated as a human being, there's no reparation that's gonna fix that. Do you feel that you're supposed to fear the police because you're considered a suspect because of the color of your skin? There's no economic reparation that's gonna fix that. And so we have to center racial justice in every part of what we're fighting for as a country, as a people, in every part of what we're fighting for as a government, we have to center racial justice, not only economically, but in our legal system, in our criminal legal system. We need an overhaul of our criminal legal system that centers those of us who are black and brown. 
I, I'm, I'm very thankful to hear you say that, and I cannot wait to elect more black and brown people to Congress. Uh, the, the, the second one you, you had mentioned there were obviously the, the Wall Street executives who are thieves, and I find that the people who support them and the people, more importantly, who are supported by them are often the same people upholding uh, those forms of racial inequality, those forms of you know, caste subjugation and uh, dividing the classes into class warfare. Uh, and so I guess I'm, I'm curious when you're, when you're speaking of these Wall Street executives who are thieves, you're running in, in a, a pretty varied primary. There's a lot of people running the Massachusetts fourth this year. Uh, so there, are there, are there particular members of your opposition who are you're running against who are supported by these people? Uh, and, and would you like to take this opportunity to let other people in Massachusetts four know who those people are? You know, every time I see somebody um, who is not supporting universal health care, um, you know, Medicare for all, the Jayapal bill, um, every time I see someone who would call the Green New Deal pie in the sky or advocates that the climate emergency is a single transportation problem, um, every time I see someone who um, you know, believes that corporations can ha can become moral or progressive or whatever whatever words that we use to describe people. Um, I question where's their money come from I because just... it is so. You know, if if anything, if anything, COVID nineteen has made everything out and obvious, right? Everything, every flaw in, in our systems, every oppressive system we've been surviving day in and day out um, has become obvious to those who have been living in comfort. And so, you know, that's what I, what I would want people in Massachusetts and people across the country to know is that we need more survivors in Congress. We need people who have lived the day in and day out of our oppressive system that throws people in the downward spiral of poverty so that we can engineer our way out of it. We can build something that is focused on humanity, on the rights of the working class, and on building a resilient economy that can withstand further shocks. One of the things, uh, you know, I'm, I've worked most of my life in sales and marketing and communications of some sort or another. One of the things I really enjoy most about your campaign messaging is this idea of, like, being a survivor of just this entire system, right? Like, in, in some form, I, I feel like survivor as a, as a term has been kind of co-opted now by either being a cancer survivor or sexual assault survivor. But you... Have, have, and all of your messaging kind of expanded it to be, you know, surviving the pains of capitalism, surviving poverty, surviving domestic assault, surviving, you know, all of these other things that kind of just come with the, the general survival of the shitty economic circumstances that come under capitalism and under, like, corporate greed. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, I, I find it very kind of inspiring to see... Uh, kind of under that umbrella how many of us fit and how many of us are able to be humanized and vulnerable and then then find the strength to do something about it uh and it's one of my favorite parts of your campaign so so thank you for continuing to do that here uh i guess i'll end on a much lighter note uh and my my follow-up question on software engineers is a lot easier uh 
You're the first person I've heard talk about automating taxes. Like, you know, you always, you know, I feel like every Republican primary every couple of years, you hear somebody be like, we're going to get taxes down and put them on a postcard, right? Like the 555 rule and all these other, you know, crazy shit you always hear people cock up. But like, you just want to automate the tax system? Like, you wouldn't even have to file taxes. You just like log in and check that your shit's okay if you want to. And otherwise, like, it just, you know, goes. That seems like either awesome or very corruptible. You know what I mean? I feel like somebody puts in, like, one wrong digit at the IRS, and then, like, everybody gets shorted $2 and nobody notices, but, our, you know, somebody is just pilfering off, like, $2 billion bucks and nobody knows. So what is, is that, like, a, a, a real, like, do you have, like, a real, like, policy on, like, automating taxes eventually? Is that something, like, hey, that might be, like, a, a cool project to invest, some, you know, some money into and see if that were doable? Because that definitely sounds uh, like, an, like an MIT think tank project I'd love to be a part of, but I just, like, I don't even know where to fucking begin with that. <laughs> so can you answer this question um when amazon got a trillion dollar tax cut mm -hmm. did anybody ask for our permission on that uh no <laughs> so i I, I see that as i see that as money that actually was denied to millions of americans so that mm. this head of amazon can make more money and be the richest in the country one of the richest in the country so was that automated? Fair. <laughs> yeah. So I see that if, if, you know, when people have to go and file their taxes and pay to file their taxes, right? Mm -hmm. And if they're delayed, they have to pay fees on that. It's a trap to get people into basically spending more than they can afford on just filing taxes when we have every system in place that already taxes the heck out of out of our you know out of our paychecks so huh. we have every like the automation is already there it's just so essentially the, the goal there is then, like, cutting out all of the, these profit-making middlemen on the, the system of like filing taxes. It's like it all of this software should be available to you anyway and automated and free. Like that's pretty much your right as a taxpayer. Like you shouldn't like there should be no tax on paying taxes essentially. Basically. All right, I'm in. <laughs> we uh we're gonna wrap up here but i always wrap up by asking everybody the same final question here uh you know but besides some of the people that we've talked about today who who are the people out there that you're hoping kind of has a chance to hear this episode and get to know your story and get to know what you're about and what you're fighting for well all the people in my district um i would love for all of them to to get to know that i'm here for them uh i'm here to you know hold space for them and for their voices and make sure that they are represented, especially the working class uh, people in my district who have been underrepresented for generations. Um, and so, you know, I'm asking anyone and everyone in CD4, in Massachusetts, across the country to join us um, on our COVID-19 relief calls um, on our phone banking calls um, to make sure that we're getting the word out and that we're helping the most vulnerable in our communities um, get to the resources and the mutual aid networks um, that they need. And you can do that by going to our, to our website at um, ISSAN.org, I-H-S-S-A-N-E dot O-R-G. 
Awesome. So if you're out there listening, especially if you're at MA4, uh, which just so everybody listening at home, because we do have a lot of Massachusetts listeners, where where exactly is the 4th Congressional District? I know it's Alston, Brighton, and some of the surrounding areas. There are other kind of like border towns there so people know where to get to. Alston and Brighton are outside of the district. Oh, my apologies. Um, Sorry. No worries, but they are full of constituents who um, work in the wealthier towns of the districts, but they cannot afford to live in those wealthy towns. So we have with Brookline, Newton, Wellesley, uh, um, okay. and you know the the dist- yeah the districts is very it's very gerrymandered. Um, goes. Uh, to, you know, Attleboro, goes to Fall River, goes to Totten, um, Sharon, everything in between. It's kind of like, you know, borders Boston, but doesn't pick up any part of Boston. Gotcha. And, you know, it, so like it me- has, you know, west, it, you Metro South and West. A li- it doesn't, you know, it kind of brushes over Metro West. Um, it doesn't include Framingham. I don't know. I think like Framingham is where Metro West kind of starts, okay. and, but it goes to the South Coast. Gotcha. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's where that's where people need help the most. You know, Fall River, Totten, Attleboro, uh, and those areas. Brockton um, in there as well. That's that's who we're working for. Right, yeah. Awesome. So. I'll, oh wait, is Brockton? Yes don't think Brockton is in a district, no. Okay, I just want to double check. So all my South Shore yeah. people, i got a lot of them out there. I just want to make sure we, we gave, uh, sorry for everybody listening in other parts of the country and not Massachusetts. You just got a whole geography lesson on Massachusetts real quick. Um, for, all, <laughs> for all my South Shore people, all my Newton people, all my Wellesley people, all my Brookline people, I know there's a lot of them uh, who I've met through uh, Boston's tech scene and other places. Please, please, please uh, go to the website, follow her on Instagram, check out the show, obviously, for more candidates that you might want to get to know uh, and spread the word, man. Uh, Again, you should check out the website. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, but hopefully I will spell it correctly. Isan.org, I-H-S-S-A-N-E dot O-R-G. Uh, find all the information you need there on the issues, the COVID-19 response, which I, I think you're doing an excellent job on kind of providing good resources for people here within the district. Uh, is there anywhere else they should check you out online or in person in, in the upcoming, uh, in, you know, before the election, obviously? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been hosting um, live conversations on uh, Facebook um, and Twitter. So tune in for more of that um, and, you know, follow us on social media at Isan Lucky um, and Isan for Congress on um, on Facebook. Um, so you'll, you'll, see, you'll see a lot of what we've been doing and I hope you can join. I hope you can donate. I know it's COVID-19. Um, and it's difficult for a lot of folks who have been given small dollar. Um, but if you are in comfort, if you have helped your community and you have some left, um, just donate to our campaign because this is this is an investment in in the long term uh, and in policies that will shift the conversation into focusing about um, it focusing on on the most vulnerable amongst us. Listen, she's not allowed to say it, so I'll say it. If you live in Newton, you don't need that $1,200 that badly. Kick a couple bucks over to her campaign and let's change the fucking world, all right? Like, do everybody else a favor. You live in Newton, you live in Wellesley, you live in Brookline. If you can buy a house out there, that's like $1.2 million per bedroom. So, shut the fuck out. Like, you got a couple hundred thousand. Uh, <laughs> like I said, you can't say that. I will say that as a, a, a tried and true asshole from the North Shore who, you know. <laughs> 
I'll leave that alone. Anyway, uh, in high spirits, and I, I thank you dearly for uh, coming on the show and kind of explaining uh, the, the future that you want to see for our country, the future you want to see, uh, you know, for my home state, for my neighborhood, for the, for the communities I'm in all the time, the places my friends and family live, you know what I mean? Uh, this is near and dear to my heart, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy to have kind of progressive voices out there, you know, fighting for us who, you know, understand what it is to survive. So uh, I guess until next time, I'm obviously Mitch Gaines. She is... Isan Lucky. I think I was probably the best I've done today, but still not right. Uh, and we are all Woo-hoo. those people. You don't have to want it so bad. You could just put it back. checking out this episode of those people a podcast with people about people real hope that you tune in for the rest of this season which includes episodes with new york city and massachusetts congressional candidates as well as a couple of cool bonus episodes that we're going to sprinkle in along the way a few quick housekeeping notes here. If you happen to really enjoy this episode, please, 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 please rate and review the show wherever it is that you listen. Helps other people discover the show, and that's really sort of essential for us to be able to bring you a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, and hopefully however many seasons after that. If you really love the episode or you just want to support this show, there are a number of ways that you can do just that. You can head on over to anchor.com slash those people slash support, and you can make a recurring monthly donation to keep our show going. You can also buy one of our creative people, political people, t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, or whatever other merch that suits your style over at mitchgains.com slash store. We have a bunch of other cool shit for you for sale, so if you want to check in, poke around, see what, uh, even if you hated the episode, there might be something cool there for you. Or if you want to just buy me a drink or something next time you see me when I'm around your city, that'd be cool too. But most importantly, if you do want to support the shit that we're really all about and you have a little bit of money to give, head on over to mitchgains.com slash diapers and support our ongoing diaper drive for families affected by the uprising that happened in Minnesota. Uh, that's probably the biggest project that we're working on right now. We could really 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 use your help with all of that if you have feedback on the show i'm always all ears my twitter dms are open and you can always find me at mitch gains uh, you can also email me at mitch gains at gmail.com if you prefer speaking to writing obviously i do too that's why i have a podcast you can leave us a voice message at the voice number that's here in the show notes and your feedback questions or opinions may be used in a future episode Special thanks also to Amy Bazoon Artea, as well as the Justice Boys for our outro and our intro music, respectively. Both songs are fittingly titled Those People, and we'll post the links in the show notes as to where you can find them. 
Lastly, I want to give a most special thank you to our executive producer, Kayla Shailen, without whom I mean this literally, none of this would be possible. And I also want to give a final thanks to all of those people out there who've supported this project from its earliest days, including previous guests like Ben Dulong and Ryan Grimm, friends of the show including Irvin Bailey, Crystal Roloff, Shelbo the God, and countless others that I'm missing. I'm Mitch Gaines, and thank you for listening to this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people. We'll see you next time.